Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Exodus chapter 10 through uh, about half of chapter 13, and then also uh, touching on some of the themes that we looked at in Jeremiah chapter 46 and Romans chapter 9 and Luke chapter 22 with the accounts there of the what's called the Last Supper and also in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where you see that this context of the Last Supper is brought in on a wider discussion of what sort of people we are to be and what context this celebration called Passover has to do with anything you might say in in real life all right so in looking at where we are in the passage that we're the greater passage of where we are in exodus this section that we're at in exodus is really starts in chapter 7 and we got into that with our last torah reading and it stretches on through uh, the end of chapter 12 and so chapter 13 then picks up a slightly different topic but it actually brings the whole passage of all the plagues back into perspective with this um, discussion of the last plague related to the firstborn and also this practice of consecrating the firstborn and it brings all of those things together into this statement that the lord is saying that israel is my firstborn and then that should also make you also think about when you're talking about the only son of god the son of god the only son of god and that prefigured also rolling back the tape even to the time of abraham when abraham was told to offer your son your only son and then that son was then swapped out that son was not offered but the lord did provide and you have one of the the names that the lord is known by you know yahweh Yirah or jehovah jireh is how it's um, said and that can almost can be taken two different ways meaning that he will provide is one way that's translated Yirah, but also you will see or he will see or he will be seen <laughs> seeing that hebrew doesn't have all the little nuances of english verbs that there are a number of different ways that you can take some of these verbs because hebrew uh, ancient hebrew here the only really has really two tenses and that's past tense and present tense and you only get future tense really by taking it's almost like algebra you take the past tense and then put a negative on it and then it turns it into the future tense so sometimes it can be a little confusing to see what you're referring to with with some of these verbs as to whether it's past tense or 
um, future tense, just have to look at the context of it. So, with all that said, one of the things that we're seeing with this particular passage going forward is this is a battle of wills. And we see it mentioned in here a few times in this particular Torah passage we're going through that the glory of the Lord will be shown, will be shown to Pharaoh. Well, is heaven just deciding to pick a fight with the, one of the superpowers of the time period? Or is this part of a bigger lesson? A bigger lesson that rolled back the tape, goes all the way back to Abraham, and this great message of a beachhead in the world. Because as we saw back there, and we look back into, into Genesis chapter 12, you see that you're having this winnowing of people down through time. You have the flood, then you've got at Babel, Tower of Babel, then you've got winnowing again down to one particular family of those three sons of Noah that came off the ark. Winnowing, winnowing, winnowing down. And then out of the descendants from Shem, and we call them Semites, then out of one particular part of those, you have the calling of Avraham out of that. And as we saw, they called not only Avraham, but his father. And his father then drug the kids and <laughs> the relatives with them. But they only went so far. They only went part of the way out of what we call in modern-day Iraq, the the valleys of uh, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, and moved into sort of, what would you say, be sort of in the realm of maybe modern-day, like eastern Syria in that area, um, eastern Jordan, and kind of stopped. And so then you saw Avraham called to say, hey, go, go the rest of the way to the land of Canaan or Canaan. So with that, you see that this battle of wills is not just something that dropped in out of the sky at the time here of this particular paro. This was happening over a long period of time. And we saw through several chapters of Genesis, from Genesis 37 all the way through 50, where we have the account of Yosef. And we saw, just like what we were talking about in the last Torah portion, is that it wasn't just that heaven had something against Mitzrayim, against Egypt. It was against a particular leader of Egypt. Because what you see is that there was a pharaoh that knew Yosef, that knew Yosef's leader, other, the, the creator of heaven and earth, and then there was the one we're dealing with now that did not know. So, knew, did not know. And one of those things that you can also see is cared to know, didn't care to know. And even as we see with the accounts that we're going through here, even as the empire is being brought to its knees through calamity, still did not want to. No, and one of the things when you look under the hood and see in here, you're seeing kind of two different words being described. We in English we just call it harden, 
but you see the two different ideas being put into place as being strengthen and also give courage to. So what you see is, um, we, we have that old aphorism in English, is that a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. And that's pretty much how you would sum up this whole fight that's going on between heaven and this particular pharaoh. He was being solidified into the direction he wanted to go. And thus, <laughs> you see the problem that starts to come up. So we see in this passage that's uh, starting in chapter 5 of Exodus, going through chapter 7, the first encounters between Pharaoh and Moshe. Let the people go. No. Let the people go. No. Not going to let them go. They're lazy. Give them more work. And let them, let them do their own kind of reinforced bricks. Let them figure that out themselves if they think they've got all kinds of time. So then we see more signs show up. So then we get with the focus part of this particular section that we're looking at. The focus of this particular section are plagues 8 through 10. These plagues that are coming down. And they lead up to, very interesting left, so 8, 9, and 10. So we saw the progression. Locusts. Then darkness, and not just any sort of darkness, a darkness that could be felt. And, yeah, <laughs> uh, excuse yourself back there. Yes, the darkness that you can feel um, and the idea that you could have darkness on one side, light on the other, I mean, I told this story before, but uh, I saw a, just a slight example of that when you know, I was growing up in Anchorage, Alaska, and uh, there was a volcanic eruption across from, um, from Anchorage. So Anchorage sits on kind of like sort of a peninsula, and then there's this inlet that's just to the west of it, and then there's a mountain range that's right across the inlet from that. And there's several volcanoes right um, to the west. Well, one of those blew up and huge amount of ash. And the ash cloud, you could actually see it. It was like a black curtain that was just coming east across the inlet. You just see it out there. And they were the, the meteorologists were telling people, uh, this thing is going to arrive at this particular time. So you see people just running around like mad, just trying to shore things up, like trying to find a sock that at that time when we had carburetors, or at least you know, your beginning of your air filter to shove a sock or something into the intake, or figure out something to deal with the soot that was going to then arrive. But when it came in, it was like sand falling from the sky. It was very coarse. I still got a jar of it back in my home in Alaska, but it, it was extremely coarse. It would be, be like extremely coarse grit sandpaper. And you could feel it kind of falling down on your face. So... This one, when they talk about a darkness that could be felt and that they, you would have, have darkness in one area and people have light in another area, oh yes, that particular 
thing is indeed possible. But this was more than just soot coming down. Why do we know that? Because it said they didn't want to get out of bed. So this was more than just some sort of volcanic eruption uh, where you know, people have conjectured about, oh, this was like Cyprus or something like that, a volcano that blew up and dumped soot over Egypt at a particular time period. No, the account is here it was more than just a volcanic eruption. And you see that it progresses then on to still won't relent, leader of Egypt. Well, then it's going to be the death of the firstborn. And like we saw with our previous studies here in Exodus, that this part did not drop out of the sky either. This thing of attacking the firstborn of Mitzrayim. Because why? What did we see the threat from this Pharaoh who did not know Joseph and then did not know the God of Joseph? What did he say earlier? What was earlier on in Exodus? He was going to go after the firstborn of Israel. Remember the whole babies into the Nile thing? And you're like, okay, you know, we're going to go after your, your strength of your people. So this was coming back around. Now, the thing that we see is that this was not a, just a capricious sort of thing. Because what happens with chapter 13? That's what chapter 13 here that we read, the first half of that chapter was all about. It was that this death of the firstborn was a gigantic cost for the people of Mitzrayim. So much so that the firstborn of Israel, you must be redeemed. Because basically, your life is sort of forfeit because of the lives of the firstborn of Egypt that were forfeit to get you out of the house of bondage. Freedom was not free. It came at a very high price. And it called the firstborn of Mitzrayim. So then the firstborn of Israel had to be redeemed out. Their life was hanged in the balance. So their life was hanged in the balance, and then they had to be redeemed out. So, thus we can see in this particular passage that we've got the account of the first Pesach, or the first Passover. We've got the first memorial of matzah, or unleavened bread. And then we've got heaven's claiming of the firstborn of Israel. And so we see what the particular reason is for the matzah for the unleavened bread and that's why we brought in that passage from first corinthians chapter 5 we saw the apostle the apostle paul using this in in the context of a problem that they were having in that particular congregation in corinth but they were having a problem of not being able to make a distinction to say Certain behavior is good for the people of God. Certain behavior is not good for the people of God. Tears down the people of God is destructive for the people of God. 
So that was used in the context of unleavened bread. And so what is it that the Apostle Paul is riffing on on this? And it's very important. We talk about this when we get around to Passover time and unleavened bread time. Because what is unleavened bread really a memorial of? Just that the yeast didn't rise? Didn't have time for it to rise, okay? But it was more than just, okay, it was a thing of convenience. Just like circumcision was more than just a thing of, uh, you're now in the club, you're not in the club. Because you see it talked about later with circumcision being that what was a part before has to be removed and left behind. They talk about rolling back the reproach of Mitzrayim later on as we continue on with the Exodus story. So circumcision, a part of, hey, leave your past behind. Unleavened bread, what the Apostle Paul talked about. This is not malice, wickedness, malice, evil. Those things are a part of the leaven. So when you are unleavened, those things are removed. Sincerity and truth is a part of what the whole delivery out of Egypt is all about because Passover, then seven days of unleavened bread. Freedom, detox. Okay, you've gone through detox. Now you're headed to the mountain. And we're going to read about that as we continue on in Exodus. Headed to the mountain. You might say that is your whole um, rehabilitation at the mountain. Because after you go through the detox, okay, so you've gotten past the, the um, physical uh, compulsion. Now you need to choose something better. Because one of the things that we've talked about with Teshuva, we just went through this <laughs> with our Roman study in the beginning part of chapter 2 of Romans, is that it's repentance, when you see it as it's described in the Bible, is not just to turn away from something. It is to turn away and then turn toward something. Not just to, as Yeshua said with his parable of the house, not just to, if you have an unclean spirit in your house, you don't just throw it out and then sweep the house clean. You have to fill it with something good so that the sevenfold bad spirits don't come moving back in. So that is a part of freedom from the old way of life. Detox, go to the mountain, meet your new boss, not like the old boss, and then you continue on into the land of rest, the land of freedom as it goes on. So you say, okay, the first, these first seven plagues were to convince Pharaoh, this Pharaoh, the Pharaoh that did not know Yosef, that he wasn't in charge and his pantheon wasn't in charge. It wasn't in charge of the planet. And you were seeing here also 
a growing realization, and you see this from the courtiers of Pharaoh, that we may think we are in charge, but we're not actually in charge. And if we don't relent to this one who is coming and asking for you to relent, there will be nothing left to relent from. There will be nothing left. Your empire is going to collapse if you just don't say, okay, I give in. Your gods are not powerful. But there is one who is powerful. And it is in charge of these people who we have kept down. And we didn't want to know whose God they served. So yes, uh, so when some came with them with the mixed multitude that we, <laughs> that we, we, we talked about before. But the, the whole thing is, is that, and just like we, we saw with the, the instructions in Exodus chapter 12, Yes, if there is a sojourner among you, if there is even someone who is your indentured servant among you, they can become just as the native-born. And they can, you know, and it talks about with circumcision. Now, Paul goes on at length in Galatians and such about circumcision. Why? And as you read those things in context, what it was is ma'aseha Torah, or works of law. And we, we have dug up stuff about that in some of the Dead Sea Scrolls that talk about this, basically the holiness codes of a time period. And yes, circumcision was in there. And yes, even Shabbat was in there. Shabbat observance was in there. And what is that saying? If you do this of the holiness code, you are considered having a place in the world to come. That, when you read Paul, is the context of it. Uh, yes, uh, Lorilla, you've got a comment or a question here. I noticed that in today's culture, we still do the same thing. Uh, and what it's do you mean? become a hierarchy. You know, if you are a follower of Yeshua and you're circumcised, well, that's a higher level than if you're not circumcised. And if you are, you know, some people say, well, it has to be, Shabbat has to be Sunday because that's the day the Lord was risen. And other people are, no, 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 the Bible very clearly says Shabbat is on Saturday. And so then there's, I, I see this in my family. So this is where I'm coming mm. from. It's like, no, 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 no. You're just, you're being very naughty, Larilla. You're showing up to church on a Saturday. And I'm going, well, that's biblical. <laughs> well, but it's holier if you show up on Sunday. And I'm going, mm, okay, so that's, well, that, that's my point. It's all, it's all about the law. It's not about what. God said it's yeah. what man said and what man said is can be an error yeah what and God that's, says is never an error yeah and that that does bring up the the very interesting uh, point that we're going to be getting to very uh, very shortly here 
No, no. Actually, that was that you might say is one of the best uh, segues ever. Yes, uh, Ben and I. I I just was thinking about how you know critically important is that you know there are many that you know as earlier is that they uh, have all the head knowledge, you know they have the intellect, um, they have the outward forms, but they don't have the regeneration, meaning that they don't have the circumcision of the heart. Yeah. And I just want to, you know, just, just uh, drive that home because, you know, I mean, uh, there was time that I had my own pride and self-righteousness and I had a lot of the understanding, but, uh, you know, I didn't have the circumcision of the heart. And I just want to drive that point home, how critically yeah. important it is. Which was one of the reasons why we went through that passage in Luke chapter 22. Because one of the things that was very important to note there is when he says, this is my blood. And he talks about the blood of the new covenant. And we read about that a lot. And that passage, their new covenant, because Hebrews covers it extensively. I mean, Hebrews is really a gigantic exposition on the new covenant prophecy found in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. And the reason we know that is because it's quoted several times in there, and it's one of the most lengthy quotations that you have from Scripture that are in the apostolic writings is from the New Covenant prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 31. It factors in huge in that particular letter. So when Yeshua is talking about, this is my blood of the New Covenant, and you roll back the tape, well, what was the New Covenant prophecy that was given to the prophet Jeremiah? And it talks about, you know, what? New heart, put your spirit, the spirit of the living God within you, and then write his laws upon our hearts. And so, that's what I was talking about, that this covenant would not be like the one that was done before to, you know, at, at uh, Sinai, my laws, which they broke. Um, yes, uh, Alex. I think it was emphasized also that you had to be within a household. It wasn't kind of like, well, if that guy's coming and he's circumcised, it's okay. It's, it's more you had to be under a household. Not just anybody. If he was in your household and he was a partner, slave, and he was circumcised, yes, he's in. Mm. But uh, so it wasn't just anybody as long as they were circumcised either. I thought it was emphasized a couple times. Yeah, he's a member and, of your household. Yeah, and and that's that's where you see the you you could see like the layer cake of these instructions, you know of. Pesach being something that's um, primarily something that happens within a family. And the reason being is it kind of helps, helps as a reminder about the first Passover. You know, now we don't have a destroyer that comes around our neighborhoods, but we remember that within inside the certain house, that has the blood of the Pesach on the doorposts of it, the entryway to it, the doorposts of that house, that will block the destroyer. And that is the Lord's destroyer. The Lord provides the lamb that blocks, and the Lord provides the destroyer. So when it talks about you know, the wrath of God being poured out, and then the wrath of God being poured out, 
unto the Messiah. And we see that there at the, at the cross. Then you see that coming around to full fruition. That what blocks the wrath of God? It is the blood of the Lamb of God. That's what blocks the wrath of God. And also, when you start taking it on to the extended part of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, then you see it's not just blocking it, keeping it the wrath at bay, but taking those things, those stains that we have, and removing them, covering over and removing them. Yes, uh, Ben and I, then uh, Gio over there. Uh, when I was reading through uh, Revelation, it just seems that there's a lot of similarity of the plagues <laughs> yes. in Revelation and the plagues of Egypt and about how those who are marked uh, by our Lord God uh, that are covered by the blood of the Lamb uh, will not suffer the wrath of God in Revelation, but just like in the times of Egypt, those that weren't covered by the blood will suffer the wrath you know, of God. I just wanted to, I thought there was a really beautiful, uh, I don't know, similarity there. Paul yes, you know, well, okay. yeah, especially when you, when you talk about the ideas of the seals and the marks. Yes. Those are things that you see that harken back to the prophets and talk about, well, the mark of God are the ones that, you know, weep and cry in the streets of Jerusalem, not just for no reason, but for the downfall that here the capital of God's embassy really on earth is slid down into just really being nothing like or you could say nothing different from any other nation around, and you could say even worse. Uh, yes, Joe, uh, go ahead. So another thing that uh, was brought to my mind in, in this conversation is uh, when Jesus talked about the, the wedding uh, yes. and, um, and the call went out and people didn't come, and so he sent them to go out and collect people off the street, and he brought them in, but... They were to wear a garment that was given to them uh, at the wedding. They weren't just to, you know, show up anyway. They yeah. had to put on the new garment. Yes, put and on then the new if garment. we don't put on the new garment, if we don't, if we aren't covered by the blood of Christ, then yep. we aren't a welcome guest in the home. Yeah, and that that's a, a very important symbol there about the 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 clothing because you see something very similar talked about in the prophets where there's a picture of the high priest and his clothes dirty. They're supposed to be set-apart clothes of the high priest. But heaven had to remove his dirty clothes, give him new clothes. Then he was fit to serve. And that's then a picture of we have to get new clothes. Yes, the... <laughs> the yeah, the clothes that... Uh, that we have need to be changed out. So one of the things that I want to take, take a look at and really get uh, to what Lorilla was talking about is that this is number one about the plagues, both as you're mentioning there in Revelation and here that we have in Exodus, are really about making a mockery of the powers that are supposedly in power, making a mockery of the gods of Egypt. Not just to go, ha, 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 but 
one of the most incredible things that you can do to some sort of uh, power, entrenched power, is to mock it. Because you see what happens when people are in a tenuous hold on, <laughs> hold on things and then they're mocked. They lash out. They lash out. They do not like to be mocked because the mocking does what? It helps really expose the truth of what is actually going on. For example, you see the prophet Eliyahu, Elijah, up there on Mount Carmel. When he's mocking you know, the Baals there and the Ashtaras and the prophets and the prophetesses up there, now, it's all kinds of, I, I, that's one of the most hilarious parts of Scripture because of the mockery that's being passed by the prophet over there. Well, what is that doing? That's kind of like what you see in the prophets that talk about idols. Very similar, mocking. You know, it's like you made the thing and you're bowing down to it. How crazy is that? So thus, the mockery that was going towards the Baals, hey, you're in charge of the sky and the thunder and the lightning, Baal. Well, maybe he's asleep. Maybe you go wake him up. But then at the end of that, fire comes down. Independent of whatever Baal was supposed to do and completely consumes everything. Yes, after soaked the whole thing down. Now, also, Ben and I brings up a very interesting point of how much water they poured over this. Remember, this was a drought. You know, remember, we've just gone through three years of drought. The, the whole point of people are getting uh, very incredibly parsimonious with their water use. And you just imagine today, someone just out, you're seeing someone out there just pouring gallons of water over something that's flowing down all over everything. You know, you think, what are you crazy? Because one of those things that you're expressing is not only that uh, there is no storm God, there is the God who made the weather and the atmosphere and everything else. And number two, that the one who sends the rain is not Baal. It is the one who created heaven and earth. He will send the rain. So... You could say is also an act of trust, or we call it faith, the pouring out of the water over it to not only mock and show up the so-called gods, but also to show who really was. And you see the people's reaction to this display on both accounts of the fire coming down and also, then you could say, the ending of the, <laughs> the drought. So. One of the things that uh, you could see is that the legacy that came after these plagues long lived for hundreds of years later, because as it records there in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 6, it talks about the, the Philistines. They talked about it hundreds of years later. And we see that as we get on into um, the accounts of the spies going in to the land, and then when you read on into the book of Joshua with the taking of Jericho, the people of Jericho, oh, they knew what happened 
at that point, you know, four decades before, they knew what happened to the army of Egypt, that one of the great um, gods of Egypt, or of Canaan, there of the Baal Tzaphon, completely shown to be powerless because the one who was supposed to be the master of the sea, the master of the great beasts of the sea, the God of Israel just blasted open the sea and the people just walked right through. So, yeah, so you could see that those who had ears to hear and eyes to see, Rahab and her family, she led them to the better choice. So much so, that just like what we see with the Passover, that those who decide to leave their past behind and join, then become just like the native-born, and then Rahab becomes a part of whose lineage? Yes, Yeshua's lineage. It becomes a legacy of the Messiah, a foreigner. A foreigner of a conquered city, one of the first conquered cities of the land, becomes a part of the lineage of the Mashiach. So that is really a great, a great picture. Yes, uh, Ben and I, go ahead, please. I was just a thought that I would just maybe like to, you know, test against scripture about, um, about how when they were let out for hundreds of years and hundreds of miles, you know, that testimony went forth, you know, for hundreds of years. It's just that when Yeshua comes back for us, the millennial reign and about, you know, the reigning of him for that time, that thousand year period, I wonder, you know, if there's some similarity about when he comes back, you know, the <laughs> millennial reign, right. you know, and about, you know, there will be, he'll reign as, as king. Mm -hmm. you know, on his throne, and we will go up and worship, and, right. you know, and people will come from all the nations once a year to come up, you know, if that will be kind of like that reign where, the, you know, where that priesthood were called to be kings and priests unto him, to the Lamb, mm. you know, if there's some similarity there, you know, possibly. Mm. About, you know, like the, the training in the priesthood? Yeah, you know, and, and like, uh, the legacy of the Lord's yes. actions. You know, in the priesthood for that going on, and, and then when he comes back, he is our great high priest. Mm -hmm. and I'm just wondering if there's some mm. type of connection there. Well, yes. I mean, when, when, you, when you see that this picture of the building up of the uh, house of God, and you see that uh, there in what is it, Ezekiel 40 through 48, where it goes through long, detailed things about the, the building of this great house of God, that this and you pair it together with some of the things that's like the apostle Peter talks about that we are living stones in the in the house of God you can see that this building the thing that God is building is enormous and there are lots of stones lots of living stones that are going to be going in to this particular building and thus you know do you have this kind of uh, training training up throughout our lives that's as we talked about when we started this journey again back in genesis with the choice between the two trees that's when we all are now choosing because we've gone through life and we've seen where that road to the tree of knowledge of good and bad goes and we've seen that that is just a road to disaster it's not 
does not make one wise. In fact, the wise one chooses not to go to the tree. The wise one actually sees that the wisdom of God is really at the tree of life. So after a lifetime of learning that, then when you talk about a nation of priests, who better to help direct the world toward the only source of help than those that have been delivered from from that and have made the choice? As Revelation talks about that, you know, the one who overcomes gets the crown of life. The one who overcomes gets to eat of the hidden manna. The one who overcomes, the one who overcomes, the one who overcomes. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, go ahead, uh, Gio. So I was also um, am mindful of the, uh, the fact that um, Christ was with the Father in the beginning. He's the uh, true-born, unbegotten, uh, begotten son of, of God. And then he came down from heaven and was uh, grafted into the family of David, into the lineage of David, uh, born of, a, of the virgin, but he was grafted in. So the Gentiles are grafted in, as, you know, the Jews are the natural-born children of, his, of, mm. of God, and then the Gentiles have been grafted into the, the family as well. So yeah. uh, it becomes an extended family in that regard. Yeah, extended family. And that is that is really the whole point. You, you people always talk about a you know a big tent uh, viewpoint. Well, that is what the kingdom of God is. It is not small tent click club stuff. It is big tent. We talked about the expanding size of the house of God throughout time. Tabernacle. Then you talk about solomon's temple <laughs> it keeps getting bigger and bigger and then when you see what's revealed in ezekiel and revelation the thing is enormous that's a picture that this is the house of god just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger to do what in my father's house are many mansions many rooms meaning there is room and he keeps making room for all of those who are want to choose Yes, even bigger when New Jerusalem comes down. Yes, Anne, go ahead, please. House for you. Yes, there's room in my house for you. That's a great quotation. So one of the things that Pharaoh and the people then had to learn about these through these plagues is really who is in charge. And one of the things that we see in that passage uh, that we had taken a look at in uh, in First Corinthians chapter uh, five, is that those people in Corinth? You might remember from your little historical discussions about Corinth. Corinth was a very, you could say, cosmopolitan place. Lots of people from different nations. It was a a big trading hub. So there was people from all the nations that would come through there and would stay there and bring their ideas through there and a whole bunch of stuff. The same happened with the Phoenicians and their trading routes took them to many places and they brought back many things from those places. And they also brought back many ideas from those places and they took their ideas and took them to other places. So Corinth was a big mixing pot of all kinds of ideas. Now, 
in the midst of this, you see that this congregation that the Apostle Paul is writing to, they're mixing together some terrible ideas, and that they were then accepting this behavior of one of their members in there that, as Paul mentions in passing, hey, this is something that's even considered unacceptable in the, among the pagans. And uh, we are being tolerant of this within the body of God. And so he uses this reference there in comparison to the unleavened process and the removal of the people from Egypt as a way to branch into this idea that, okay, yes, the kingdom of God is going to be a great big tent that is going to get all of the people in. But the problem is, is that you may come as you are, but you don't stay as you are. You realize that this tent, this house of God, has a different way that it operates. The life that you're going down is different. It is going to be different. Yes, Alex. Yeah, these were state-sanctioned, like, idol religions in, yes. uh, up in that area. So Yahweh had his hands full, man. Yes, I mean, this is so. thousands-year-old. My gods, you making fun of my gods? Yes. I mean, he had to like really pound it home that yes. it was boss. I yeah. mean, you know, up in Corinth, it wasn't just a, they were used to being nasty. Yeah. That was their religion. The, the whole sacrificial thing, yeah. lust was power. Um, it was to be uh, emphasized, things of that nature. Yes. Yeah, it was deep. Yeah, and when you see that there's a, another letter like in uh, Colossians chapter 2 where you see another discussion of just like with the Lord kind of breaking through to Pharaoh and to the people, hey, your gods are not really in charge. You see a similar thing in Paul's letter to Colossae in that congregation that they had to realize that their pantheon they just couldn't bring all of the pantheon into the door and just make the God of Israel one of many, one of many gods. So Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to the Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority, and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision, circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, 
things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking in his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, having supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a um, grows with the growth which is from God. So that's Colossians chapter two, eight, verses eight through nineteen. Now, you have heard that it has been said that uh, Colossians chapter two, verses sixteen and seventeen, there and kind of companion passage in Galatians chapter four, verse ten, and it proves that. Yeshua took away the Torah and you know, especially the instructions for the holy days and nailed that to his cross via his death and resurrection. So we you know, the, an expl- explanation of these particular verses here, there's a link to it at halal.info slash feast-objections where we go into a little bit more of that. But just some high points of that particular passage really some questions to engage with this particular passage is something we talk about especially with these letters of paul and especially with something like romans and other galatians is best to do so as well is you've got to read whole big blocks of it around where you're reading the particular text and in cases like paul you got to read almost the entire letter. Pretty much a good part to read the entire letter because especially like Romans, it is one running idea from beginning to nearly the end of it is just one running conversation and thought that is getting explored, explained, expanded upon. So if you're jumping into little bit parts of that, you are missing out. You're taking things out of context for what the greater message of his letter is. But some questions that you can ask of this particular passage that we looked at in Colossians chapter 2 is, if you remember where we started in verse 8, where it talks about uh, the empty deception and tradition of men. If those who are saying that Colossians 2, 16 and 17 is talking about certificate of ordinances, meaning the Torah, the, the law of God, if that's what was nailed to the cross, then does that mean that Paul is saying that the words of God are empty deception and traditions of men? A good question. Also, if the Old Testament is really tradition of men, then why was it that Yeshua was battling the Pharisees over interpretations of the Torah? If the Torah the Old Testament, as it's called, was really just traditions of men, stuff to be discarded. Why did Yeshua make a big deal over it? Just, you know, why, why quote it? Yes. And you see, uh, talking about everything that he spoke, well, what were the words that he spoke to the adversary? It is written. It is written. It is written. And especially one of the things that it was written is, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And there you go. That's from Deuteronomy. So in that particular passage, that is kind of like a starting point where you have to then explore ideas of what people are saying that Yeshua said 
what Paul wrote against those particular things. And we frequently mention you know, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, because that is a part of the preamble to the Sermon on the Mount. That's a part of a preamble to that. So also, and something in uh, discussions is that when you go into Acts chapter 15, and you have the Jerusalem Council, and supposedly then it's like, oh, well, believers from the nations only have to do four things. But the, the question is then, why is it then in verse 20 that he says, they only need to do these four things because they're going to every Shabbat, they're going to read Moses. Well, that then implies what? That this is a starting point for learning who it is that is behind the Mashiach that you are following. Just like, remember we were talking about in the Exodus with the Passover? Deliverance, detox, and introduction. So, oh, yes, Larry, I you're, leave you hanging over there. Sorry. <laughs> you don't know what I was doing. <laughs> uh, I was talking to somebody the other day who, after, after we're talking about uh, um, Matthew 5, and she said, uh, well, yeah, all the prophecies were fulfilled. Mm. And I, I was like, uh, excuse me? You know, but it's, it goes on both sides because the Jews are saying there was never anybody as great as Moses, where Moses said, another one will be coming like me. Yep. And so, you know, and they all of the intertestamental like. writings talk about the prophet. So when the, when the Gospels say, are you the prophet? They didn't just pull that out of the air. That was talked about yeah. in at least the century or so before. De Deborah, go, go ahead before we... Um, you were saying about the Gentiles doing these four things. Um, I hear that from people out there all the time saying these four things. Well, you do those things, but then you don't stay there. It's like, you know, you come to church and you don't stay that way. So when they came into the congregation, they would um, learn, you know, because this was the beginning of their, um, their walk. And yeah, so especially, people think, yeah, well, we'll just do this and we'll stay that way. But you don't. You continue to grow. <laughs> and as you become closer to the Lord, you have a heart. It's not difficult because it, he didn't make it that hard for us. It does seem like it, though, is because we're in the world and there's, we're not like in villages and groups to be close like you know, so it's it's difficult in the choice, the choices we make to be out here is that we're all separated and we're in the exodus. I mean, we're in the diaspora. We're out in the wilderness, really. Uh, yes, uh, Lorella. I find it interesting that people, my mother used to say cherry pick, and I finally found out what cherry picking is. <laughs> um, and she said, you, you know, they're, they're cherry picking which commandments you're going to obey okay so the torah has been nailed to the cross you don't have to worry about that but you still have to tithe mm. uh the torah has been nailed to the cross you don't have to worry about that but it and there was all of these things that um, i grew up knowing that that was what you were supposed to do of course it was because my mother said these are the laws these are the ones you're supposed to obey but it it amazes me that when you confront some of these people, especially pastors, um, and especially tithing, 
drives him crazy. Uh, you know, well, no, we don't, we've, we've been saved from the Old Testament. We are new creatures in Christ. We have a whole new set. I said, then why should I tithe? Oh, yeah. because God wants you to. Well, then he wants me to do the other things too. It's, it's not, I mean, there are some laws that are in the Old Testament that we can't do anymore because of circumstances. There's not a temple. You can't offer sacrifices yes. there. And, and we, we, we have the, the big 50-cent term for mm-hmm. those. And we, we are reminded of that every time tax day rolls around. Yep. Two words. Categorical exemption. Mm-hmm. And everybody's glad about that when tax time comes around, but it seems like with the law of God, we completely forget about it. So you're, you're very happy when certain tax laws don't apply to you, but you seem to uh, want to throw out uh, many parts of what God's words are because not acknowledging that there are indeed categorical exemptions for different groups of uh, people. Yes, uh, Sean back there. One of my prayers for myself is that, uh, like David in Psalm 119, that was all about a love response to the Creator. Yes. You know, there wasn't a checklist and, you know, and all that. It was, if I didn't, I'd be doomed. I mean, yeah. that kind of understanding of, of those instructions, um, that's, that's what I, I crave in my life. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, uh, Ben and I over here. You know, in the beginning of my, in my journey of uh, studying the scriptures, you know, there was a time when uh, I'd gone to Bible college and uh, it was like there was a forcing, it seemed like so often from a lot of the leaders about uh, passages that uh, weren't congruent, meaning they didn't fit that, and they would have to, had all these other study books and all these other books and, you know, to try to explain away things that really didn't fit and didn't understand i didn't understand it and i didn't get it um and now later on in my walk i'm realizing that if i come across scripture and there's uh something that doesn't seem uh to fit is that uh it's my own heart and my mind that needs to be rectified it's not the word of god that needs to be crucified or changed or manipulated uh, to fit a certain theology or doctrine, but it's uh, it's my own foundation, it's my own mind, it's my own being. There's something that needs to be corrected, you know, from maybe doctrines of men or, or you know, from things that I've learned in times past. And so I just want to say, you know, that's a journey, you know, that we all go on. Yeah, I just thought that was important. Yeah, indeed. And that's why it is so important when we go through when the Torah cycle, we, we meet this passage uh, when it talks about the Passover and the plagues and the deliverance from Egypt. And then when we go back around it during the time of Passover itself, when it rolls around in the days of unleavened bread, this is an incredibly important reminder that we go through because as you see, and when we looked at this passage here in Exodus, and we see that's the reflection on it from the prophet uh, Jeremiah. And then we see the reflection on this from the Apostle Paul and the inspiration that was given to him about 
what this whole sequence is of what Israel is, what it is to be, not just a club, but it is to be a part of the kingdom of God helping to save the entire planet and bring the people of the whole earth into the kingdom of God to bring them near, as it talked about in the passages we looked at here today. And we see that key to this, key to Passover, is the Mashiach and what is talked about when we see the accounts that are in the Gospels about the Mashiach, there, the crucifixion, and how that fits together with Passover. Because some people have kind of come into this as they like, well, it seems kind of strange to, you know, uh, bolt on the Messiah onto Passover. And it seems kind of like just kind of strange. Well, the Bible doesn't seem to see that that way. It seems to be quite integrated together that to remove the Mashiach out of it, you're kind of left there as, okay, saved, saved out of slavery, out of bondage, to do what? To really do what? Yes, to, to worship him, to love him, and that being the, the progression of things as they move forward. But one of the things, that as we kind of close out here today, that we should reflect upon is that you know something similar has been done you know we we've talked about how our brothers and sisters in the body of messiah have um have taken <laughs> how they've how they've taken the the words of god and said well okay they came up to a certain point and then the blood of the messiah has basically brought that to a close and now we're moving on to a new era the church era or whatever else you want to call that it's now become something different so we're seeing something very similar happening in the world today and when we talk about our uh, we're talking about freedom from slavery and you're seeing right now as we speak rolling out this alternative view of the history of the world and specifically on to the history of the United States saying that uh, this is a place that is just rooted in slavery rooted in racism that that is what this whole country was started on from beginning to end you know and children are being taught about this being taught in their schools the 1619 project as it's Goal, it says, is to reframe the country's history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the United States national narrative. Well, that last part is great. And also about the consequences of slavery on this nation. Oh, yes, absolutely terrible. Absolutely terrible amongst all of that. But... One of the things that you see that with this 1619 project was done to commemorate the 400th anniversary of, as they say, the first enslaved, um, the first enslaved Africans that were brought into the Virginia colony to Jamestown. Well, the thing is, is that one of the things that's acknowledged in that is it mentions that 
these first slaves came in because they were captured by other tribes in Africa who then sold them to Europeans who then took them to the United States. And one of the things that the, the people who are putting this 1619 project forward are saying that this challenges the whole thing of the Declaration of Independence, that that's not really the foundation of this particular nation. Our nation was really founded back in Jamestown with its dedication to slavery and the enslavement of people. So the part about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that's in our Declaration of Independence in 1776, not really the foundation of this nation. But like we're saying, well, then how much more what we've been talking about with what has been going on with the um, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God? Also being treated in a similar sense, that that is what? Bondage. That it's bringing you back into slavery. If you look into it, you explore it, you go into it, that that is just putting you into chains. Yes, rather, rather than what, what you see. Yes, being a slave to righteousness. Other than what we, what we see is that you are actually delivered out of your old life into a new life. Uh, yes, yeah, so hold on. We're, we, we just need to wrap things up here. So, um, But one of the things that, just like what we've been talking about today, that our brothers and sisters really need to know in the body of Messiah, that this kind of an idea of the whole word of God is actually can make the body of Messiah sick. It can sicken the body. Because some of the things that we see in the challenges that the body of Messiah is having right now is that it's having problems with knowing right and wrong. Because it has chosen certain things, certain words of God that are obsolete, not for today and is now at a bit of a loss to now go back when you're starting to lose touch with what right and wrong actually is, to then say, well, is that right? Is that wrong? Well, somebody told me that this was abolished and that was enforced. Well, has it been abolished? Has it been enforced? I don't know. And one of the things that we see in just as a comparison with, with history on that sense one of the things that historians have pushed back on the 1619 project is to note that the accounts that we have, that there was like somewhere between 20 to 30% of the people who were living here, the tribes here in North America, they enslaved each other, as happened in, in Africa, as happened in Asia. It, it has been a sad account of the human condition that the strong will oppress the not strong. And we read about that back in Genesis there at the Tower of Babel, because Nimrod, various ways you can translate that, you know, mighty hunter on the earth, but basically a dominator. He's really seen as one of the first uh, dictators on the planet, wanted, one, somebody who wanted to control. And you see that's the history of uh, Europeans enslaving natives goes way back to the time of Columbus. 
and there was also free Africans who came over uh, from Spain among Columbus's crew. So there were people who were captured by their fellow or other tribes in Africa, enslaved, sold to some other European country, freed eventually. Then it ended up with Columbus coming over here. And in American history, you also see in the South that among some of the noted slaveholders were former slaves. It is, a, it is just a story of the American condition. Or not the American condition, it's the human condition. It's the human condition that we are people that will try to dominate other people. And we will come up with all kinds of explanations and justifications for it. We'll try to drag, drag God into it. We'll try to drag, drag the Bible into it. But in a sense, we are just want what we want. And you see what happened to the South when that was just abruptly ended for them. Their economy just collapsed because they just gotten used to other people doing their work for them for free. Yes. So you can see what can happen into the human heart when we take these things that should be something that we are helping each other, helping each other along to bring people into the family of God. But are we, in a sense, dominating other people in the kingdom of God? And that's what the reference back to Ma'aseha Torah, works of law, was all about. People in the, in the family of God trying to dominate other people in the family of God. You're not doing it right. Here, let me tell you about the right way to do it. Because you don't do it the way that our group does it, then you're under heaven's condemnation. And the Son of God had a very uh, harsh words to say about when you say, you fool, meaning you are condemned and going, you are condemned by God. Because fool is just not, oh, he's a dummy. Fool in the biblical sense means you are lacking moral sense. You are basically, you know, going on, on the highway out, yeah, like a, a psychopath. So it's far worse than that, but under heaven's condemnation. So thus, Messiah says, if you say, you fool, you are in danger of the lake of fire that we read about in Revelation. That's what you're in danger of. That's that serious because you were doing what? We read in, in Revelation that those who what? Follow the beast, follow the false prophet, they are thrown into the lake of fire. So you are making the condemnation on that person saying, oh, they're in league with the adversary so much so that God is going to throw them into the lake of fire. Well, thankfully, that he didn't do that with us. He didn't do that with Israel. He didn't do that with Israel when Israel strayed off, decided to go somewhere else. He, in his mercy, gave the correction to Israel. We call that the exiles. And some people got the message. Some people didn't get the message. Some people got the message. We see Daniel, and as it's recorded in the book of Daniel, and we see in Ezra and Nehemiah, that there are people that stuck together and said, okay, we got the message. They listened to the message of Ezekiel. They got the message. They learned what, 
what the problem was that got this thing going downhill. And then when the Lord sent his anointed, yeah, the little A anointed, meaning Cyrus of a different empire, Persia, they came back and they started building up the walls, building the temple, putting things back on track again. But in the heart of it all is the heart of it all. And that is the new heart, the new covenant transformation, that new heart, the new spirit of God that within us. So that's where we'll kind of leave things out here today. So here we've gone through the breaking of the, the back of the Egyptian, the, uh, the oppressing empire to take the people of God out. And now we're going to go and see the passage through the sea, then the passage to the mountain of God, and then the passage from the mountain of God to the promised land. It's all part of our journey. We relive every time that Pesach comes along. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.